This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, simple passive cash flow listeners. Today we are going to learn about something a little bit off the wall in terms of investing. Got my buddy Matt here, Matt Finchney, and his wife Erica. How's it going, guys? Great, great. Matt and I met a few years ago in an apartment investing group. I think we sat actually next to each other, right? And we just kind of stayed in contact. A lot of common friends. One day on your Facebook feed, I saw this super, what do they call it? Headshots? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what's that, Matt? Is this like a joke or something? <laughs> yeah, that was from, from many, many, many years ago when I used to be an actor. Yes, I kind of realized this guy who's been investing in single family homes and now apartments for like 13 years, over a thousand units, had this previous life as an actor. So I started asking questions and you kind of told me about this uh, world of investing in Broadway shows. Kind of mentioned that your, your wife Erica here is really the brains behind it or partner in crime. Erica, kind of introduce like your background and how you kind of got started in this thing. And Sure. How it all happened. Uh, like most people in the business, including Matt, uh, I started as a performer and thought I was going to be an actress. And really, when I went to college was when I kind of solidified that there's, I learned that there's a whole other business side of show business, right? It's called show business for a reason. I decided I no longer wanted to try and be an actor, though I kept studying, acting, and directing, and learning the ins and outs of the business fully. But I really wanted to focus on the management side of Broadway theatrical entertainment. So pretty quickly, I started working in professional theaters in Chicago, which is at Northwestern University. Just uh, kind of followed my heart and never really looked back. I grew up on the East Coast, so I moved back to New York, which is obviously the mecca of Broadway and all things theater. And I very quickly started working for some Broadway producers and general managers. So if you will, like the CEO and the CFO of Broadway companies, very quickly, they were raising money for shows. Like you, I started asking a lot of questions. And next thing I knew, I was raising money at the time for my first off-Broadway show. And then it just spiraled from there. And someone has actually told me this in the Hollywood world. You hear about the director and then the producer role. Apartment investing, for example, the director is sort of like the operator, and the producer's kind of like the syndicator in a way. The way that I would say it is that like the, the general manager of or general partner syndication or co-sponsor is sort of like the producer, but then you've also got the property management company and the property management company and or the operator, right? That sort of role is very similar to, to what you'd find in Broadway as general manager, right? The general mm -hmm. management company kind of keeps day-to-day -day mm -hmm. running, payroll, that sort of thing where the producer is uh, overseeing the entire vision, putting all mm -hmm. the money together, right? Yeah, the producer also is a lot of times where the idea may start or they may meet an author or meet a songwriter and say, I have an interest in developing a show with you. So the producer is really, in a lot of ways, the master puppeteer, if you will. They're the ones who kind of have all the, the strings dangling, but they're, they're the overarching presence and they're the overarching ones who make the decisions. The general manager's focus really is that of financial oversight. And the general manager is really looking at 
the budget, sticking to the budget, how much money is in the bank, how are the reserves going, when can we do a distribution, and the general manager will make recommendations to the producer, but ultimately it's the producer's decision on how to spend the money, you know, where's an advertising focus going to be, are we going to cut a new commercial, are we going to change casting, all of those types of things. So I went to New York recently and I saw, like, Book of Mormon, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the end I see, right? The end product. But how does this all begin, you know, the concept of a show? How, do, how does these things start? Many, many years before you're sitting in the theater is when it starts. For example, uh, I think it's widely reported that Hamilton, they wrote, it took seven years to write Hamilton from the time that the author, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, read the book by Ron Chernow and thought, oh, this could be a musical, and then developed it and went through workshops and all that time he was working with a producer. Some shows take more time, some shows take less time, but it's it's definitely a process of years. You also, you know, there's legal things that you have to make sure are in place. For example, if there are any other underlying rights, do anything belong to a different estate? Might a film company have the option on the property? And then of course, building the creative team. Who is gonna be the director? Who is gonna be the choreographer? Who are all your designers? How much is it going to cost overall in setting those budgets? And then the path to Broadway can be varied. It's very unlikely that a show, you know, I always joke and say, it's not like Coca-Cola is just going to take a new flavor and put it on the shelves in the grocery store, right? So Broadway shows will normally have some sort of pre-Broadway tryout workshop production or something to see, is this right? Is it working? Is the the right actress are the songs landing are the jokes in a, in a show like book of mormon are the jokes landing are they too offensive you know uh all yeah. of those questions are and are some shows reviewed. might do that several times several to times. get it right yeah. and sometimes they get it right right away and sometimes they do do all those things and they still don't get it right but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm super excited about a new program i'm rolling out that's going to reinvent scammy real estate education programs so excited, like Marie Kondo cleaning stuff up excited. Announcing my new mastermind program, which consists of a closed member site with 27 packed weeks of content, plus bi-weekly group video conference calls to ask whatever. Half of the calls will be centered around granular investing tactics, and the other half will be holistic wealth building strategies that I have learned from the wealthy. That's 25 plus hours of group coaching and masterminding, and a secret Facebook group too. I know what you're thinking. Not another flippin' Facebook group. Well, this one's gonna be different. More intimate, exclusive, and no cheapskates or shady vendors in it. I've been coaching individual clients over the past couple years, and I figured out what you guys need and a way to provide it in a cost-effective way. Learn more, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey, and join before the first cohort fills up and the introductory pricing goes away. So how much does it cost to put on a production? Like, What's the order of magnitude here? Sure. Broadway's broken into two pretty distinct categories, which is plays versus musicals. Musicals are much more expensive. You have several key positions on a musical that are not necessary on a play. So the, the core team on a play is really just the director and the designers, and you probably have a few less designers. On a musical, you'll have the director, you'll have a music director, You'll have a music department that's overseeing the orchestrations and the, just the overall size of the, the music company and additional music or underscoring or things that may need to be written. You'll have a choreographer, which you don't typically have in a play. 
and you may have, depending on the design needs of the show, you may have additional designers as well. A typical play is normally anywhere between two to six million. Six is on the very high end. I'd say the average plays are way more between like two and five million, two and four million. Musicals, on the other hand, normally start a really cheap musical would probably be seven or eight million dollars, and they go up. the The norm now is hovering on average around twenty twenty five million for a musical. A lot of times, you shoot for a musical to be in the teens lately. Currently, but it, it, it can range. It totally depends on the size of the cast, the size of the orchestra, the production values, how how many set pieces are there, how how elaborate are the costumes, things of that nature. Because these days, they're most of the popular ones are musicals these days. Right. There's always plays. The plays just don't tend to get as much attention. The musicals are what, especially in a tourism world, and they they have bigger budgets, so the advertising is going to be bigger. And they tend to be what more tours successfully throughout the country. I'd say with a play, uh, you're really hoping for a, a really strong. I mean, it, the same, it's true for both. But with a play, I think you're really hoping for a very strong review and winning that Tony. Because if you don't win the Tony Award as a play, it's very hard to sort of get noticed. I think where there are musicals that don't win the Tony or and don't get good reviews, like Wicked, which uh-huh. has been running forever and is is an astronomical hit. I think a play that gets not a great review and doesn't win the Tony would not be running for that length of time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's simple economics based on your tourism dollars that most most people in, in the country or most people in general who see shows see one show a year. So there's your first statistic. Most of the time that one show is going to be a big Broadway musical. And you have to think a lot of times, even people who are, you know, hot on whatever the new musical is, they're still they still may not have seen... Book of Mormon, because when Book of Mormon first came out, it was completely sold out for a very long time. So yeah. there's still very popular musicals. There's always going to be about five to eight musicals that people still haven't seen that are running because they're such juggernauts. And that's where the bulk of the business goes. 50% of the ticket buyers in New York for Broadway are tourism driven. So a lot of it is, is outside tourism coming to New York to see a Broadway show. Whereas with plays, it's much more of a New York-centric focus. You know, we, we, we call them the, the, the folks who read The New Yorker, if you will, or Atlantic Monthly. You know, it's much more kind of your well-educated, sophisticated theater-goer. And the plays tend to be incredibly topical, somewhat political, things of that nature. So right now you got the listener at home who got cut from their high school play. <laughs> feels this is the way they can get redemption and on the outer you know, the ring of the castle game, right? They got all these like crazy ideas or the higher level goals and he wants to buy a play now. So how does this happen? Like how can the regular person sort of invest in Broadway's, you know, more of an insider's game? Well, you know, the interesting thing is it's very similar to investing in a real estate syndication. Uh, The way that these things are set up, there are investors that can invest and you're investing just like you would, like I said, in real estate as if you were a limited partner, right? So um, there's an entity that's created and you're investing in that entity. Um, You don't have control over what's going on, right? There's the, the producer that acts as the general partner and investment increments are can vary widely depending on what the producers uh, set it, but usually there's a minimum of you know twenty five thousand to a hundred thousand is what we're usually seeing somewhere in between there. The thing to know is that this is super super risky. 
but it's also got an unbelievably high reward. And the rewards that, that Eric and I have gotten from investing in, in, in theater have far outweighed when you look at an ROI than anything you'll probably ever will see in real estate. I mean, it's, it, if you get the right one, they're very far and few between, but if you get the right one, it can do really well. It's kind of a, reminds me of like oil and gas investing, you know, because you kind of laugh about it. But it's like literally drilling for oil, right? Like I've talked to some of these oil and gas guys and they'll drill 10 wells and only like one or two of them will actually pump oil. The rest will just be complete duds that you just wasted all this money on. But, you know, a lot of times it's for taxes. Tax right. But the one that does pump oil, right? Right. So, so how, what's the kind of the... um the battering average, if you will, for one of these type of investments. Well, the one I, I I'll say something about that. That you know, Eric can talk a little bit more in generalities about the batting average. What I will say is the way that Eric and I approach it, I think, uh, gives us a higher chance of success because we don't invest on these on a daily basis or even a yearly basis. It's not how we make our income. You know, Erica is a full time theatrical producer. She's the general manager here in, in Boston at, at the Colonial Theater. Uh, I'm a real estate investor full-time. So we have our full-time jobs, and this is something that we do when the right opportunity presents itself. So we only invest and or raise capital for shows that are right. And so that, that tends to be once every two to three years. And we look at it based on three criteria. We're looking at who's the creative team, uh, who is the general management, you know, the, the financial team behind it and the producer, and then also who, uh, what, what is the actual show? So, so we get approached, Erica gets approached very often with shows that may be running money, uh, may, may be looking to have people, you know, raise money for them, but Erica will decline just like, as I'm sure you know, Lane, you and I look at deals all the time. You know, sometimes people ask us to do a deal and we take a look at it, we look at the underwriting, we're like, you know what, we don't feel comfortable with it. You know, they're making risky assumptions. I'll mention onto that, you know, with apartment investing or any real estate investing for the most part, that's especially stabilized buildings. Yeah. Maybe it's what half the numbers, half the people. But as I understand with these more riskier investments or like I talk to people in tech startups, they say it's 90 or 90% the person, 1% the idea. What are your thoughts in this realm? I've heard that a lot. And I think that that's rung true for me. I think what I always, I I have the little spiel sometimes that I give to people when I'm raising money, which is do not give me this money if, which might be an interesting way to start a conversation about raising money. It's basically like a verbal PPM. Right. But I'm basically saying it is just as likely. It's not just as likely. It's, it's like Matt said, based on the criteria that we have, we feel like the ones that we go after better chance. But at the end of the day, there are so many outside factors that we just can't account for. So we're not here to say that we've never lost money on a Broadway investment. We have. But when we've hit on a Broadway investment, it's more than made up that loss in tenfold. So some people I know who invest in Broadway look at it as kind of a mutual fund and say, I'm going to pick four or five shows over a five-year period. And one of them is probably going to flop. A couple of them will probably return most of the money or all the money. And then Hopefully one of them is going to be a real hit, right? So I think the the statistics about investing in Broadway is a lot of times they'll say about 75% of shows don't recoup, don't make their money back. But that statistic is flawed because 
while that may be true for Broadway, if you invest in the originating company, and this is an important point. Very important. If you invest in the originating company, which may be Broadway, it may be London, it may be somewhere else, but normally it's either Broadway or London, typically. If you invest in the originating company and that show goes on to have a touring company or that show goes on to perform in London or various other parts of the world, depending on the underlying rights, you as an investor will have the right to invest in future productions. Further, all of those companies pay a royalty to the originating company. So for example, when I was working on Wicked, there were eight companies of Wicked out. There was, you know, Broadway, there was two different tours around the US. There was a sit-down company in Chicago, a sit-down company in LA that then moved to San Francisco. There was a company in Germany, there was a company in London, and there's subsequently been a tour throughout the UK, there's been an international tour. So if you're an originating, if you're an investor in that originating company, all of those companies are paying a royalty to that originating company, which then obviously eventually builds up to a distribution, let alone the fact that the originating Broadway production is still running and still profitable. So it's kind of compounding interest, if you will. You know, further... Once all of the Broadway versions and the professional versions are done, there's what's called subsidiary rights. And the majority of these shows will go on to be performed, you know, think of a show like Annie. How many high schools and local community theaters do Annie? Well, if you're an originating investor in the company of Annie, for a certain number of years, you participate in all of those payments. And the, the certain amount of years is usually happens after it, the show closes right. on Broadway. <laughs> So, you know, people who've invested in shows like Phantom of the Opera that's been running for, I don't know, like 30 years, yeah. like that clock hasn't even started ticking yet. So, yeah, so there so are show investments. passing those investments onto yeah. their, yeah. their heirs. So, right? so like yeah. a apartment investment home run, like absolute home run, crush it, is like maybe you do 100, 150% return in three years, right? Or something like that. Yeah. What would be like a home run, like for like a wicked, like if you put in a hundred grand, probably hundreds of thousands of percent. Well, we, we invested. We've invested in a in a in a particular show that's doing really well, and yeah. and it's been about three or four years, and and it's got over a thousand percent return. Yeah. I mean, so with Wicked, that's been running for fifteen years. I I, I at least I tens think, of thousands of percent. I would guess. Yeah. We, we didn't invest in in the Broadway Wicked. Wicked's been running since 2002, 2003, so it's on its 13th or 14th. No, I think it was this year. Yeah, this is the 15th year anniversary. And I would think, I'd have to remember, I'm, I'm scratching some cobwebs back here because I used to work in the show then, but I think Wicked hit 150 or 200% in the, certainly within the first two or three years. Yeah. And it's still running on Broadway, and it still has subsequent productions, and that's, you know, 12 years The thing years is on. the exponential factor of being able to invest in the subsequent companies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times if we have a show that's successful, that's doing a tour or additional productions, right? Like let's say Hamilton, right? We invested in Hamilton. It was doing well. They were opening up another company and we just took some of the profits, not all of them from the Broadway production, right. put that into the next one mm -hmm. and then the next one and the next one and now there's six companies of the running. Right. So the, in that situation, you sort of parlayed your cash. Then. No, no, but I, I would say, yeah, we parlayed part of our cash, but not uh, all of it. I mean, we, you know, if, if I'm making up, I'm completely making up numbers, but let's say it was, you know, $10 to invest in this additional production. Which it's and, not, but. <laughs> I know, I'm saying, I'm making up the numbers. 
but we already had like twenty dollars, so we were like, oh well, we'll put ten right. into that. We yeah. already were, we're we're doing. We more. were made whole in more, and so we took the more and invested okay. in stuff. You know, presents itself. But I think there's an important, two important points. And Lane, you said it's it's a lot about the person. I think that's one hundred percent true. One bit of advice that I always give to people who are like, oh, my cousin's thinking about investing, or my cousin was approached about investing in a Broadway show. I always say with who, and not necessarily the name of the person, but it's very important if you're looking at getting involved in investing in Broadway, that you know who the person you're investing through and how close or what is their relationship to the general partnership. So I am not just going to passively invest in something where I have no connection to the general partnership and most likely the general management company, because I want to at least have an understanding that these are people who I feel for whatever reason have a good track record or who have sound judgment or who I've seen can make good decisions. The last thing you want is someone treating it as other people's money and just spending, spending, spending. Similarly, if I'm raising money for a show, I will always put my own money in no matter what, because I do feel that you as part of the partnership make different decisions when you know that whether or not to buy a a new TV spot, which is could be, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars that can significantly impact your ability to do distributions in the next six months. But it's going to, that's directly money that is essentially coming out of your pocket and those that you care most about your investors in this situation out of their pocket. So I think clearly you're not taking more investment to make those things, but it's just from the profits, you know, choosing when to spend the expenses or when to distribute becomes the sole responsibility of the producer and the general managers. So who are those people and what would your relationship as an investor be to them, depending on who you're investing through? Just like apartment investing, right? Or any other kind of syndication investing is who know, like, or trust, right? You got to know the people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, so I think the two biggest things that we've discussed that to highlight are, is it the originating company, just yeah. because of the potential for future, you know, uh, investing in, in further companies, plus the royalty that gets paid to the originating company? And then secondly, who are you investing through? Those are always the, the two key things to look out for, especially someone who's looking to break in or new at this. So the, these guys, and well, maybe we'll stop there because I think we got people uh, salivating the mouth from this. <laughs> And I'll say, don't invest in this, guys. Like, this is something fun. <laughs> if you're the 0.01% of people who, who listen to podcasts and actually follow through and do every single thing that people say, this is not for you. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about the dark side of this. So, like, they'll go out and raise $5, $20 million for a show. How does the that budget get spent? And what's sort of the timeline so you actually start seeing some cash flow, right? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So... Yeah. The, stabilized apartment, maybe like under a year, right? But is are we looking at the same thing? This stuff, depending generally, yeah. I mean, it depends. So, a couple of things it depends on when the money's being raised. Typically, the money will, will be ultimately raised about six to nine months before a show is opening on Broadway. And then, because and 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 to be clear about that, you, you just got to think about what's going on, right? They have to build the sets, they have to find the cast, they have to rehearse the show, right? To put so, tickets on sale, yeah. yeah there's a lot of things that, that need to happen. Yeah, so uh, it's sometimes it may be further out, but that's when it's like really heating up, and and in fact, like that's when investments start closing because people will say, "Well, I'm getting fully committed in my share, and so uh, you know, capping out, I, I've maxed out, which is great." Um, it can go longer, but you know, you as a, as a general partner really like to know that you have the money coming in. I'd say no later than three months before. Then 
that being said, no distributions can happen until the show has actually opened on Broadway. And similarly, no investments can be made once the show has opened on Broadway. Yeah, that would be um, a Ponzi scheme, right? To pay out cash flow without profits. Correct. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing is you have these advanced sales of tickets, oh. but the money's not counted until that performance happens. Correct. So the money's not realized until the performance happens because if the performance doesn't happen, you have to refund all the tickets. So you might have a big, let's say you have this really big Broadway show and it's like a $15 million budget and it's got all this buzz or whatever and tickets go on sale. You could theoretically have $15 million worth of tickets sold before opening night, but none of that money counts until that performance actually happens. Right. And I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. A lot of shows might distribute within the first month or two of opening, but they're going to be cautious, right? As we've said, reviews sometimes matter a lot, sometimes they don't, but you have to see what the buying trends happen and how far out are you selling. If you release a block of six months tickets and they all sell pretty quickly, well, then you're going to know that you can probably distribute. And I've seen some shows do a 10, 20% distribution on opening night or within the first month or two. On a real hit show, on a juggernaut hit show, you would expect that you're, you'd recoup your investment in the first nine months to a year, I'd say. Wow. That's just you're recouping your investment. But that's on a, that's on a real juggernaut that's, that's churning out money yeah, and putting big, advanced big, big, blocks on sale. Otherwise, you may see 30 to 60% in that first year. And then it's a question of, does the show keep running? Uh, which is a big kind of critical moment in a, a show's life. I guess in syndication is when you guys kind of say, like, do yeah. we sell now? Do we keep on to it? For, for Broadway, it's, can we keep ticket sales off enough? You know, you, you can run a show into the ground. Sure, you can just keep running a show and keep putting, you know, the money into it to just not make distributions, but that's not a responsible decision when you have investors. Yeah. The question becomes, when do you stop the show running and start that other clock in terms of subsidiary life or is there a tour going out? You know, you're kind of looking at a bunch of different factors of when can a show stay in the market or, or the other thing time that's that's interesting. Uh, sort of two things I think that the listeners of the podcast would really like to know, which is number one, the way that the distributions work and the return works. So the way that it works is you you have your your income minus your expenses. All of that profit goes right back to the investors up until you recoup your initial investment. It's almost like a kind of like a hundred percent pref sort of right. I mean, yeah. all of the yeah. all of the that comes in goes to the investors until recoupment. Once you've hit recoupment, it usually obviously typically, deals can be yeah. different, but typically it's a 50-50 split. So 50 to the general partner or the producer in this case, and 50% to the investor. That's number one. And number two is in terms of the dark side, you know, there, there can be a dark side and 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 you can lose the show could open up and, and close the next day, right? But typically what we see in a lot of these shows is you may lose 25% of your money. You may lose 35%. You know, so you're, you're, you might not hit that full recoupment, but you're getting pretty close. So obviously nobody likes to lose money, but that's, I mean, if you, if you just want to be realistic about what's the risk when you're investing in something like this, there's more of a likelihood that you're going to lose some of it. There's not a huge, there's not a high likelihood that you're going to lose all of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a small likelihood that you're going to make a million dollars. Yeah, and there's also the tax benefit, you know, like you were talking about with the oil investors that I always say, if you love the arts and you're inclined to make a donation to a nonprofit 
arts company, you know, you're in tax donation, you might as well invest in a Broadway show because if your show, for whatever reason, loses the entire investment or part of the investment, you can write it off, right? There's a loss. Regular business loss. Regular passive loss. Yeah. If suddenly that show becomes a hit, you've just taken what would have been a donation to an arts entity and turned it into a positive investment. So that's my own little little thinking that way. But there are, I think, a, most of the people who invest in Broadway, you know, if for whatever reason the show isn't as profitable and they don't make their money, I think they do understand that they were supporting the arts. That, you know, I always say you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Lane, you were asking earlier, you know, how do people find things to invest in? We were both passionate about the theater. I love the business side of theater. And I started raising money because I love supporting this art form. But I also, a lot of the shows that we work on, I'm passionate about what the show stands for. Even if it's just entertainment, even if it's just a chance for people to laugh for two and a half hours, you know, as part of their day. I think, you know, being a part of that is really, really special and really unique. So I feel, you know, I always say to my investors, I'm not going to sit here and promise you millions and millions of dollars. You may do very well with this investment, but I also am going to tell you all the reasons why I think this show is a, is a, has a good shot, but also the things about the show that I feel, you know, passionately about. Kind of like reminds me of like, you know, your friend has a comic book or like a children's book and you want to invest in that. You kind of know the people too, right? Partly yeah. investing in people you know and people you like. Yeah. Certainly when I was getting started, you know, I was in my early 20s and I knew no one was going to write me a check for a million dollars, but I did say, you are supportive of me having a career in this industry. This is how I get my start. And, you know, at that time it was mostly off-Broadway stuff. So the investments were considerably smaller, but I did go to a few people saying, I hope to, you know, grow up in this business. I really would love your support. And this is the show that I'm working on. And when a lot of people did say that that was a motivating factor for them because like any industry you need to nurture the next wave of people and um and that was great i mean i i would feel very fortunate that way so going back um what matt was saying like the press schedule or the the, the i don't know what you call it, the profit splits i guess yeah so i've seen this kind of creep into apartment investing deals where they'll they'll pay out investors first the payout on the back side of that recoup is a lot less I think a lot right. of the deals that Matt and I invest in, they're usually like 80-20 splits or 70-30 splits. It's super simple and you get the high side, right? Because the bad thing about the recoup is that if this thing absolutely hits a home run, then you only get 50-50% of that super high-end shelf. Yeah, you know, I've heard I'll, 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 let me Let me just say something about that. If I may, yeah, it's because when I first started, you know, really digging into it, I was like, this is weird with this 50-50 split, but the thing you have to understand is that the producer uh, may work on the show for seven years, right? Like, like Erica was saying, they're fronting all of those costs. They don't get any sort of acquisition fee. There's no disposition fee. They, they get some, something very small that might be considered like an asset management fee, but not really. It's very, very tiny. They're, producers yeah, they're getting paid for their time via salary. No, 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 well, no. no. Once no the show's up and running, there is a, sometimes there's a, a sometimes the producers fee, have like an office, an office fee. fee, but it's, I'm telling you, it's very, very minuscule compared to what we might have as that asset management fee on a real estate deal. But they've put seven years of money and some cost, you know, could be in the, the tunes of tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars developing something that may or may not be a hit. So for them, 
to, I think, give 100% of all the profits to the investors to upfront until they hit recoupment is actually great. And then afterwards, they're taking 50% on the back end. Me as an investor, I'm fine with it. Because at that point, those returns are going, they're not, it's not going, if you get to that point, okay, as far as I'm concerned, from what I've seen, you're not going to have a 200% return which is like a, like a home run in, in, in real estate, right? In real estate, you're looking for like 100% ROI in five to six years, right? If you were to get 200, that'd be like incredible. Yeah. If you're at a point where the show has recouped, especially if it's recouped within a year or so, that 50%, I mean, that, that thousands of percent ROI figure that I tossed out earlier, that was, say, that's considering the 50% already going to the producer. So mm-hmm. you're, you're still getting extremely handsome returns. Mm-hmm. And they can go on in but, perpetuity. With yeah. the real estate, a lot of times, especially when we're doing a value add, you kind of hit a ceiling and then it kind of like stops and you can maybe get that 10% cash on cash. Maybe there's a refi situation where you pulled it out and you're still getting that 10%. But on a Broadway show, that thing can run forever and you'll be getting a lot more. If it's a hit. I mean, yeah. from, a, from a syndicator's point of view, it's a very, it's a t- kind of a tough sell, right? Because it's a very risky investment. So by putting that 100% recoup, Pref in there, that sort of makes it a little more appetizing to investors, just from a buyer seller standpoint of investors. And yeah, well, I, I think so. Yeah, and Shell loses money, uh, and so you lose some of your investment money. You're like, well, at least the producer didn't like take profits, you know? No. And, and, and so I think that that's a, I think that's a good thing. It's and, and the money that people should be investing in a, in something like this is is really discretionary funding, right? Yeah. I mean, Elaine, I know that what you talk about, you talk about sort of that holy grail, right? Of like having a mobile home park and a single family and a multifamily and coffee farms and, you know, all these different types of investments, which is nice. And it's a really smart and prudent way to invest, right? You're investing in different, it's all sort of real estate based, but sort of different areas within that real estate to kind of give you, give yourself some diversity. So you're doing a, you know, a self storage unit and a multifamily, right? This is something that is not, it's not real estate, but it can fit into someone's portfolio, but it should be a small part. Like you don't, you're not going to, you only have a hundred K to invest. Don't put it all in a Broadway show, <laughs> but, but you can put 25 in a Broadway show and 75 in a bunch of other stuff, or, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, it's 5% of your portfolio when you, it's just like investing, I think in VC or tech things, like you're saying, like if you do you put a little bit of money into those things and if one of those pops, you know, Look, if you would have put ten thousand dollars in a Facebook, like you know, however long ago when Mark Zuckerberg started it, you'd be a multimillionaire right now. I'm not saying that's going to happen with the Broadway show, but I'm just saying there's that sort of risk reward thing that's going on there. So if there's like a family out there, net worth maybe two to five million dollars, mm-hmm. what would be what would be your recommendation of their portfolio being in something maybe not specifically Broadway shows, but more discretionary, like a tech startup or uh, friends. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, when I look at, at our portfolio and the way that we've been kind of doing it, we're investing in a, a tech startup right now. We've invested in Broadway shows. I mean, I think Erica's fact that she's involved in it is uh, even makes us do stuff more, but maybe 15 to 20% of our portfolio, maybe even more is in sort of some of these more discretionary buckets. And we have a lot of stuff in, in, in real estate because that's what I do. And like Erica was saying, 
every time I do a real estate syndication, I'm putting my own money into it, right? We're doing the Broadway shows only like once every two or three years. So it's just, we, we put our money in that, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not nearly on the frequency level. Well, right? yeah, I mean, and to be clear, because we're right now in a good situation where we have potentially two hits on our hands, we're keeping that money for those subsequent productions. Sure, and, like an and you guys are sort of insiders too. You guys yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm in the business. So it, it's just like if you're in, parallel is, but I guess it's like if you're in real estate and you know that, you know, related is going to put in a new building over here, you may not want to buy the apartment building across the street. You know, I think I'm just aware of what other shows might be coming in. I'm aware of what artists might be working on shows. I'm aware. I certainly have my own preference for producers that I like right. to work with often and general well, managers. So, you know, but, but it's all personal, right? It's all relationships and it's all personal. So you could speak to someone else who does real estate, um, sorry, who does Broadway fundraising and investing and, they, and they'll have their own experience and they'll have their own preferences. So it's very just tied in on it on a daily basis too yeah. with what she's doing at the, yeah. at the Colonial. Plus she worked on Broadway for how many years did you work on Broadway? You know, some of her friends and our friend, like, mm-hmm. you know, our friends are, like most of our friends I'd say, are involved in theater. So we talk with them. We know what projects they're working on. So Erica, like what is like, other than like the people, the key people you like, what is a, a, like a nuance that you kind of pick up on evaluating a deal outside or wouldn't even kind of think of? Uh, maybe just make their experience at the theater a little bit more uh, sophisticated, I guess. I mean, I evaluate the budget, but I, I know budgets incredibly well, but I'm sure it's the same. It's no different than when you guys are looking at like, oh, they're putting this cap rate on it, but we know the taxes in this market are going to be this. So the, you know, the broker's not necessarily showing this on the other. When I look at a Broadway budget and I start to see, like Matt was saying earlier, there's normally like a producer office charge. If suddenly there was a producer office charge that was really high, I'd be like, wow, who's this person? And what do they think they're getting away with here? You know, right. so you- like a 4% acqui- acquisition fee first day, right? Like, that's crazy. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, oh, so I know what's happening here. And there are. I mean, trust me, you know, just like you guys have a have a offering memorandum and a PM, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, we have what's called offering documents and subscription it's documents. It's the exact like, same, exact stuff. same stuff. but. Definitely has like bold, like do not do this investment, you know, but most of our um, investors are, most investments go to accredited investors. I mean, for people who are a little more sophisticated, a lot of the stuff she's doing is a 506C, right? Mm-hmm. So that's okay. a lot of, yeah. she's usually it's SEC regulated, um, depending on the total capitalization, there will be a limit of how many total investors can be involved. Um, you do sign an affidavit saying that you're either subsisted or accredited. But all of those things are, are pretty standard in investing. Well, a lot of them sometimes are, I don't know if it's a lot of them, but like the last one, you had to be accredited. Right. Yeah. It depends. It's set by the show. It, de- it totally depends. And you have to follow those rules, obviously. But again, I will just look at the budget and I'll ask questions, you know. And again, it's the importance of my relationship with whoever that producer or general manager is that I can say, hey, can you just describe this to me or can you tell me? Or, hey, I saw this. You know, Matt said, Matt's totally right. It typically goes 50-50 after recruitment. I've seen some that there's sliding scales that when we get to 200% recruitment or when we get to 300% recruitment and it changes. You might, like a like a typical waterfall that you might see in a real estate investment, you hit a certain IRR and it goes from 70-30 to 50-50 or something like that. 
Now, I personally, thus far in my investing, have not signed up for one of those subscription documents. I've seen them. But again, it just depends on your, you have to read like anything. You have to read the fine print. You have to ask questions. You have to understand. And again, it's like you said, how much faith and trust you have in the people who are handling the purse strings there. Because they can make a decision to do a whole new advertising campaign when the show's not selling really well, which may be the right thing to do. But on the other hand, I don't know if you want them spending a ton of money when the show's dying. So those are the, those are the hard questions that shows confront, you know, when you know that an apartment investment has just become a money pit and you just need to get out of it. Right. Same kind of thing. But again, it's your relationship with those people there. And, and again, looking at the subscription documents and the offering documents and understanding how you follow where the money's going and to whom and who's managing it. One, so one thing I kind of picked up, you know, if you go with an average budget of $10 million and you pay these salaries, you know, there's a certain burn rate of like just the operating costs per oh, week. And that's spelled out in the, in the documents. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the documents. Yeah. It's just like your operating budget on a real estate deal, right? You've got your yeah. your accounting for, so they're, They've got to account for royalty. They've got to account for the cast. They have to account for the rental of the place, the advertising right, budget, all, at, that yep, all that. You know, and, and again, there's there's pretty set costs in general, but the big variable will be your advertising. And then if you are going to bring in a star or, if, you know, there are, there are different things that can kind of hit the show in general, but hopefully your general manager has built the budget with those expectations. You know, you do have two budgets on Broadway. You have your capitalization budget, which is all of your upfront costs, your costumes, your set design, your build, your developmental costs are all built into your capitalization. But then you have your weekly operating budget and then you, you can kind of see the grosses are reported most of the time. Yeah. They're certainly reported to the investors. And then you know, you know, if your show costs five, $600,000 a week to run, but you're only grossing $700,000, there's a little bit of profit in there, but not a lot, right? If you're grossing $1.5 million a week, well, you're almost hitting a million dollars in profit there a week. A certain amount certainly goes set aside for operational reserves and running costs. Broadway, like any industry, has swings. There's seasonality to Broadway as well, just like there is retail or Yeah, this, like the, the next two weeks are going to be incredible. If you look at the, the grosses on Broadway, they'll be huge yeah. because... Christmas time. Holidays. Yeah. But January, the first two weeks of January can be really slow. The first few weeks of September with back to school and religious holidays and well, August is a can be slow, but summer tourism can be really high. So you, you look at that layered into what's happening with your show and your advertising plan because and they'll, they'll use that to, to decide when to do distributions, which could be quarterly, they could be less frequently, or if you have a big hit, they could be monthly. Frequently, yeah. So a lot of like, I guess in, in apartment investing, you've got cash reserves, right? Because I, I, I'm thinking, and I might be wrong on this, you might have a good play on your hand that's not one of the 75% of the duds, but there's comp- you got to keep it running, right? For a little bit to get, you know, for a yeah, catch, right? Opinion. Like, how does that kind of work? Some shows will be getting close to, you know, maybe didn't get great reviews and they're not selling really well, but it's getting close to the Tonys. So they just want to hold out until the Tony Awards, because if they get that Tony Award, I mean, actually, Erica, you have... Yeah, I did. I had that happen with with a play of mine that was literally, you know, the the big New York Times critics do, like, a who will win and who should win, and they all kind of weigh in. And our show, which was, like, the little engine that could play at the time, which I love this play more than anything, but 
it was up against this like huge, you know, James Gandolfini for the first time ever. And the Sopranos had just finished, you know, had just had its final season. And James Gandolfini, what did he do? Like most Hollywood people, when they're on a successful show, they go to Broadway and do like a 20 week run of a Broadway show, which is great. And it's, it's really fun for the industry when and that it happens. It was a great show. It was a great show. It was a hilarious comedy called God of Carnage. That show. That was not the show I was on. I was on the other show. <laughs> and the show I was on was like this little off-Broadway play that got transferred to Broadway with these like New York actors. And they, it was awesome. And they've all gone on, I will say, to have amazing careers. And those actors now are household names. But at the time, they were not. But it was a great play. And it was this kind of debate of like, what should win this like off-Broadway scrappy play that's now on mainstream Broadway and people love it. Or what's most likely going to win is is a it's also a very good play, but it is selling now, and it has James Gandolfini, and it's so ex- it was James Gandolfini, Marsha Gay Harden, Jeff Daniel, and uh, anyway the other actress escapes me at the moment. But it was it was a huge huge juggernaut of a of a play, and literally up until the Tony Award, I even at that night when I was sitting in my seat, I I had hope because if we won it would have completely changed because we would have been the play that won and people would have bought tickets and we would have been able to run probably for another year. If we didn't win, we knew we were going to close the show. So it was literally up until they opened the envelope and then the other show won. But you guys were limping along at the end there. At the end, we we wanted to keep it it running in case it did because if it hit the Tony, there's a very high likelihood that it would do really well. But then if it didn't win the Tony, which it didn't, it did two weeks later. But it was a great show. And so the producer, that's something that producers got to be able to make that calculated risk. Like, do I spend the money and keep it going? Because, you know, or or do I just close it down, return to investors, some, you know, some of their profits? Or do we hold on hoping that we're going to get this thing? So, you know, those questions and things like that that need to be decided all the time that producers all need to figure out. Yeah. What does it take to make one cup of coffee? What are the stories contained in a single cup? Who is this handsome man? For most of you I talk to in our free intro coaching calls, I see a theme of mission and investing for greater good. I found an investment that would be improving the lives of their community by improving living conditions and paying for children's education. To learn more about this investment, check out Simple Passive Casual backslash coffee. This specialty coffee makes for an amazing performer. similar to like even apartments right like you could have a apartment kind of limping along you got like 60 percent in three years to your investors which is not bad but then you hold on and potentially wait for something to happen and get 150 percent in five or six years right like i mean yeah, that producer, the producer may want to or the syndicator may want to just get it on their resume to that higher amount the same thing with the producer right get it on the resume well, but no, I think the important thing to to remember there is that the distributions don't necessarily stop when the show stops playing on Broadway. This is where this is where it gets really important with the person, right? So hopefully you're investing in somebody who you think is going to make the you know right fiduciary decision for the investors, and that that comes down, I think, to almost a character question, you know. 
I mean, the person could want to do something just to get something on their resume. You know, hopefully that's not in, uh, hopefully that is in the interest of the investor. You know, yeah. hopefully you're not investing in someone yeah. who's doing things just for their resume, regardless of what happens to and the, the investor. And this is a, this is a real personal, like, tolerance question too. Like for me, my own criteria of evaluating the lead producer is dependent on a ton of factors. One of which is how many other shows are they working on at that time, which isn't necessarily a deterrent, but as a producer, like we said, it's not like you have a regular salaried income because unless the shows are running, you have no income to draw from, right? A lot of times producers will have four or five projects in the hopper that they're working and don't necessarily know which one's going to time out when. I've worked with plenty of producers who will pause one show so that it's not competing with another show so that they can focus. And I fully respect that decision because I think that it's a very mature decision as opposed to just trying to like force feed both because this actor is available or this director is available or the theater becomes available. You have to know what you can tolerate and manage, I think, as a lead producer. And there are plenty of producers who can manage two or three shows running at the same time. And there are others who choose not to. I think it's also different. Once it shows up and running, a lot of the management stuff, the day-to-day falls to the general manager once it's up and running and successful and ticket sales are going strong. And then a producer may then start to focus on their next show. I think it's very different to then have two shows in the same season that are opening against each other. So I think that's, that's a, something for your listeners to think about of in that, it asking, you know, do you know what other shows this producer is working on at this time? Is this their sole focus? What's the, what's the overall timeline here relative to other shows they're working on? So there's like a little bit of a run length that they built the performer that we need to at least survive for this long with our initial capital. Oh, that's a recruitment schedule. So part of the original investing document that you will analyze is what's called a recruitment schedule, which will show. It's their performer. performer. But it basically says at an average ticket price of X, here are our expenses and we need to run for Y weeks to make up those expenses. It's pretty simple, but then it'll show at like 100%, like if we're selling out every night at 90%, 80%. When I evaluate, when we evaluate a recruitment schedule, we're normally looking between 60 and 70%. Because like you said, Lane, it takes time to build an audience a lot of times. It's very rare that a show is a hit out of the gate and immediately gets the audience selling out every night. And you have to look at the average ticket price because if the average ticket price is a ridiculous price that they're never going to get, it doesn't matter what the percentage is. Nope. And the other thing is a lot of times there's these group sales. So when when group sales is coming in and buying something, you can you, you have a theater that it's 100% full, but between group sales and maybe discounted tickets, it's not they're not paying 100% of the average ticket price. Well, that was in the recruitment schedule. It might be... 80 it might be 90 it might be 100 in some cases when you have a big hit like a hamilton it's 102 110 percent right but but a lot of times it's it it can be a little smaller even though the the house is packed right and if your if your average ticket price is actually higher than what's in the recruitment schedule you're probably doing very well yes so just those are just key you know key performance indicators to kind of keep an eye on if you're watching it's kind of like your rental rate you know I, i always equate this to syndication so that, that percentage that we're talking about, that's kind of like your occupancy, right? So we need to keep a certain occupancy. But then if your uh, rental rate is lower, or maybe you have some loss to lease or whatever, your economic occupancy actually goes down. And that's kind of how it relates to, yeah. you know. Your- and that's actually how, I, how I'm kind of investing or learning other asset classes, right? Because people 
branch out from apartments and like we can talk the same language. Oh, it's like this on apartments. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny when we talk about syndications, we're literally like, oh, this is it. oh wait, literally, the, it's literally the same document. <laughs> like literally, you know, I may use a theatrical attorney, <laughs> use a more specific real estate attorney, but overall it's the same concept and the same principle. And, and again, you know, you're talking in the, for the most part about people's discretionary spending as well. Right. So, so here's something that like me and Matt kind of deal with all the time when we're kind of showing like a, a deck to investors, people will always look at like the splits, right? Like, oh, is it 80, 20 split or is it a 70, 30 or whatever, or 85, 15. And they'll say, oh, I don't want to invest. Cause I, I just saw an 80, 21 the other day at 70, 30. Right. And then, right. you know, Matt and I probably bang our head against the wall. Cause it's like, that has nothing to do with the deal. You didn't. Right. What are the rent increases? What's the reversion cap rate? What's, you know, what's the full occupancy assumptions? People are just looking at the wrong things. What is something when you kind of show it to your folks, what is like something like, like that as an example that people are just looking at the wrong thing? Oh, capitalization is the wrong 100%. thing. So many people will say to me, wicked at its time was, I think, capitalized at $14 million, which, you know, 15 years ago, that was a lot of money for a musical. Now, a lot more musicals are trending in the 20s. But I, you know, have heard people say, oh, I'm at $20 million. How do you make back $20 million in two years? Well, <laughs> dynamic pricing. You know, I mean, there are ways to do it. But again, it's like if a show costs a lot of money, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll never make that money back. It's what's the corresponding ticket sales going for? What is the audience going for? What's the brand behind the show? So it's, I just don't think you can categorically say, oh, I won't invest in a show that's more than a $18 million cap. Oh, really? Okay. That's what we Why? hear a lot. We hear that. I hear that a lot. The I other also thing is hear- like, there's not, uh, on, on these shows, there's not like a, like a presentation deck like we do on real estate, mm-hmm. trusting in the person. And then you get the documents and inside the subscription agreement and the, the PPM, it will have like that recruitment schedule. Right. But that's about it in terms of like something to look at. It's a lot more subjective than objective, where real estate is a lot more objective. You know, we're going to sell this, you know, this rent increase, and you're going to have this many people in this occupancy, yada, 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 this cap rate, where with the theater, it's kind of like, do people like it? Yeah. <laughs> are people going to it? Critics like it? Does it win awards? There's all these other things that are kind of like mixed in. I was going to say, we're going to do a first one podcast. I get the brownies out of the oven. Hold okay. On. Hold on. I'll be right back. <laughs> brownies. Can't let them burn. But that, that's the nice thing about working from home, right? Indeed. Indeed. Well, she's got to get back into the office. Yeah. So I think we'll kind of wrap this up here. Matt, you want to get your, uh, Matt's an apartment investor, by the way, just, which is really the bread and butter. And, and Matt, I've kind of always told Matt to give me a call when the next Tony deal comes up. I want to be a Tony award winner, right? Do, do we get to come up on the stage to the LPs? Or- <laughs> Amazing. I, let me let me let me tell you this. There's a whole thing in Broadway investing where people are like, "I want my Tony Award," and it's, and here's what I will say: I've worked in the industry for almost 20 years. I do not yet have my Tony Award, but I will say it's really great to get checks every month or so, whether or not you have a nice little silver award that's been. Don't get me wrong; I'd love to have a Tony Award, but I'd love for it to be for a show that we worked hard on, and I think. The, the real answer to your question is, no, the investors don't get to go on stage. The companies <laughs> get to go on stage. I and mean, even that can be limited. If um, you're unbelievably wealthy, you could try to buy a Tony, right? If you were to invest a large sum of money 
in maybe a play, like let's say you put a million bucks in a play, they might, the, the lead producer might give you a producer title, mm-hmm. in which case if that play won, you would go up on the stage. I mean, that's, right. a, that's a scenario that could happen and has happened. And past, some people are just lucky. It's rare. You know? Yeah, it's rare. I think the, the, the biggest thing to know is as an investor, you many times, there are different benefits at different levels, right? Depending on how much you invest. But many times you get access to house seats, which are the seats that are specifically reserved for the producers with limitations. It's not like you can go every Saturday night, you know, um, you can. Well, as investors in, in, in Hamilton, mm-hmm. it was this massive hit. No one could get tickets. We were able not to get a lot, but like her parents yeah. went, yeah. we sent my parents well, to specific, it. Like, you know, specific instances, you can, you can put in a request and you do have access to tickets that aren't available to the public. You typically get invited to opening night, depending on how many investors and producers there are. But yeah. obviously, it, that's all spelled out for you when you invest. If the show is nominated for a Tony Award, you typically, as a co-producer, the show's nominated as a co-producer, you can buy tickets to the Tony Award, which are not cheap. Investors, tickets are on sale to the public for the Tony Award, but they do restrict who goes on stage. Otherwise, think of on a $20 million musical... <laughs> The co-producers are probably raising between a million to two million dollars themselves. So you already have ten co-producers, and then each co-producer probably has anywhere from five to ten people. So you'd have you have a hundred plus the cast, plus the designers. You know, so there's just not physically room. But uh, but a lot of you know, I will say, if you like the arts, if you like live entertainment, and you have disposable income, or sorry, I just I should say disposable discretionary spending available to you. It's certainly a fun world to be a part of, and you certainly do see on a regular basis, you'll get financial reports, and you'll see how the business of theater works, and it really is, it is nuanced, but it's quite You know, we raised money for Moulin Rouge, which is going to Broadway this summer. It was in Boston last summer, and there was tons of people, and a lot of the people who were investing were real estate investors, and, you know, they invested in this, and they came to Boston, and they saw the show, and they had an awesome weekend in Boston, and you know, it looks promising. It got great reviews. Advanced ticket sales are going really well. Hopefully, uh, we'll all make a couple bucks from it. But it, it's a fun and exciting thing to be involved in. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll be on the stage at the Tony Awards next, you know, June. But, like, I would say I wouldn't invest in a show to get a Tony Award. I would invest in a show for no. many other reasons, especially looking at a sound. Is the investment good? The Things like Tony Awards, where the Tony Award makes a difference is, in the life of your show. Winning a Tony Award can significantly improve your investment because it significantly heightens the awareness of your show out to the general market. So from an investing standpoint, when your show wins a Tony Award, you get very excited because you've just gotten big, big huge, huge advertising big bump. bump and you'll see, it, you'll see it immediately in ticket sales, which is great. Similar to like if you invested in, I don't know, some market and then like Amazon opens up, you know, a headquarters with 20,000 jobs in it, right? Like you're like, whoa, this is great. That that would be only like maybe a 200% return, right? This is like, if if you're watching the Tonys at home and your thing wins, you're talking what, 1,000, 2,000%. Theoretically, it's extremely likely that you'll recoup your investment. And then, you know, you just keep getting money perpetu- not perpetuity, but 
for a long time thereafter because you've got that originating company. So even when the show does close on Broadway, all the residual things will be paying in. But if it hits the Tony, you're probably going to have a tour or two that go out and you have, yeah. will probably have the opportunity to invest in those depending on exactly how the deal is structured. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like a big, it's a big deal to win the Tony. It's a big the but if you don't win it, it doesn't mean that's the end. No, like definitely. Wicked. Like Wicked. I, and, and I would say also the, the reason the Tony Awards are so important to Broadway is it's actually, they call it Broadway's biggest night for a reason. It's the one night of the year where the rest of the world, the average person actually pays attention to Broadway when they normally, not to say they normally don't, but it's not normally at the forefront of people's minds. And I do think that specifically CBS where it's broadcast, but the theater community has kind of capitalized on that Tony Sunday as being, this is the, this is the night where people all around the country are actually tuning in to Broadway. And you can wear a nice dress. <laughs> we'll be watching at home. But Matt, Matt and Erica, why don't you give folks your information, email address or URL, maybe people get a hold of you and learn a little bit more about this stuff, about yourselves. Oh, and Matt, my, does, Matt does apartment vesting too. I do. If you want to find out about that, uh, you can email me, Matt, M-A-T-G, at mjppg.com. That's also my website, mjppg.com. You can find out more about me there. But more importantly, for the Broadway stuff, although we work together as a partnership, it's probably best to, to reach out directly to Erica first. Yeah, and I have a website called avalonroad.net. There's a way to contact me through that website. So you can find me there. All right, guys. Yeah, something fun. Again, don't invest in this if you're uh, not willing to lose it, discretionary or disposable, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Thank you. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.